This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 17, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In a strange and disappointing election year, there is hope in the West. U.S. Senator Mike Lee of Utah argues that it's now more important than ever that Congress seize its constitutional powers back from the executive branch. Lee and I spoke about the 2016 election, the Electoral College, and the Article One project this weekend in Park City, Utah. Interesting times. To be sure. I guess, what's where's your head at right now in terms of this election and trying to preserve your party's hold on the House and Senate? My head is where it's always been and where I hope it will always be, as long as I'm breathing and especially as long as I'm in public office. I'm going to continue to focus on restoring what I regard as the twin bulwarks uh, uh, against tyranny, the, the, the twin structural protections of the Constitution, uh, federalism and separation of powers. Uh, the, the former separates power and divides power along a vertical axis and the other along the horizontal axis. We, we have neglected both of those principles over the last 80 years to our own detriment. And it has never been clearer to me than it is right now that that's exactly where we ought to maintain our focus. So your Article One project uh, that uh, a lot of folks from the House and Senate have been working on seems more important than ever right now. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the whole reason we started the Article One project is we wanted to put together a network um, uh, in both houses of Congress to focus like-minded members on the task of restoring the power of making law to the people's elected representatives. It, it, it sounds simple, and it is simple, and yet um, I think most Americans are shocked when they realize the degree to which their own lawmakers are no longer accountable to them. And I don't mean Congress. I mean, uh, their, their elected representatives in Congress aren't really making the law anymore. In many, many instances, uh, their elected representatives in Congress are just delegating it off to someone else, or even worse, relying on a many decades old previous delegation of authority to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. So there are multiple dimensions of this kind of project that, that need to be grappled with. One, of course, uh, one of the big ones, of course, is regulation, but the other is war. Sure, sure. Um, look, anytime we're going to subject America's sons and daughters to the terrors of war, anytime we're going to send our own people, our own flesh and blood into harm's way. We owe it to them and to their parents, uh, to their siblings, to their loved ones, to at least go through the proper process to make sure that uh, we're not just going into war haphazardly and that we're not just going into war uh, without an appropriate constitutional mandate to do so. One of the many reasons why that's so important is not just that we've all taken an oath to uphold and protect and defend this document that requires it. But one of the reasons why that document requires that is for the simple reason that that's the only way to guarantee that we have the type of robust debate and discussion before we go into war uh, that really needs to happen. You and uh, Dick Durbin sponsored some criminal justice reform. Yes. And uh, there were other, I think it was Rand Paul and Patrick Leahy also had something uh, similar Yes, and, and we've, we've now got a whole bunch of uh, uh, members of both political parties who are part of that effort. Um, uh, it, we, and we've merged our bill with a different bill that uh, was originally being run by Senator Whitehouse uh, from Rhode Island and Senator Cornyn from Texas. 
the, the combined bill is called the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act. The original bill that I ran with Senator Durbin uh, was called the Smarter Sentencing Act. What motivated uh, me to get into this uh, uh, was something that I saw when I was a federal prosecutor. Um, I remember one case in particular, a case called United States versus Weldon Angelos. Weldon Angelos was a young man in his mid-20s. He was the father of two young children. He made a grave mistake. He decided to sell marijuana on three separate occasions uh, he, uh, over a 72-hour period. He sold user quantities, basically dime bag quantities of marijuana. He had a gun on his person at the time. Uh, the gun was neither brandished nor discharged in connection with the offense, but he had it on his person. Because of that fact and because of the way he was charged, he received a minimum mandatory sentence of 55 years in prison. Uh, the, the, the judge imposing the sentence, former federal district judge Paul Cassell, took the unusual, almost unprecedented step of issuing an opinion and making a statement disagreeing categorically with the sentence he was about to impose, saying, look, this is ridiculous. I mean, this guy has committed a crime. That crime is serious and needs to be addressed appropriately. But 55 years, that's more than a lot of rapists or terrorists or hijackers are going to get for their offenses. Why should this guy who sold three dime bags of pot get this uh, um, amount of minimum mandatory sentence? And then he said something that would stick with me for many years. He said, only Congress can fix this problem. I can't solve it. No federal judge can solve it. Only Congress can fix this problem. So it's one of the reasons why I got on board this effort. One of the reasons why shortly after I was elected, I started looking for ways to reform our minimum mandatory sentences. So it has been argued that sentencing reform as a, as a categorical project is dead for 2016. Uh, but is that true? And is it possible that a lame duck session could see some sort of sentencing reform that uh, Barack Obama would like to sign? It is possible. I don't know that I can say it is certain to happen. I'm quite sure, uh, certain that I can't say it's certain to happen. Um, it, it's still possible. Now, this is something that should have happened a long time ago. I mean, our bill was passed out of the Senate Judiciary Committee by a, a vote of 15 to 5. This should have been scheduled for a vote on the Senate floor a long time ago. It should have been scheduled for a House floor vote a long time ago. It hasn't been thus far. Uh, I, I think there remains a possibility of getting it done during the lame duck session. I'm not willing to give up yet. And President Obama certainly would be willing and eager to sign it into law if he did. You posted a video on Facebook, a uh, Facebook Live video, uh, sort of taking issue and in pretty strenuous terms against, essentially, I think, the candidacy of Donald Trump and the way that he has conducted himself as a human being. But of course, there are myriad policy differences that uh, people have with him, um, immigration, uh, entitlements, I mean, he's not a Republican in any substantive sense. What does his candidacy, uh, even before the election, what does it do to the Republican Party, the coalition? I don't know. And, and the point you raise is a very significant one. It's hard to know exactly where this takes our party. And I think um, exactly where we go from here is going to be uh, affected strongly by what happens in November. But I can tell you this. Um, regardless of which way it turns out, whether Mr. Trump wins or Hillary wins or something strange uh, happens and uh, uh, we have uh, an outcome that's different than either of those, either way, it's going to be important, just as it always has been, but more important now than ever before, for the American people 
to focus on the fact that we cannot allow the presidency to become a monarchy. We've kind of allowed that to happen. We've been drifting in that direction for decades. We've been accelerating into that mode over the last few years, and we've got to pull away from it. And I, I don't care which letter of the alphabet follows that president's name. We've got to start focusing on the fact that presidents are not monarchs, and presidents are subject to a Congress elected by the people at regular intervals to make the law. Ours is not a government of one. We've been treating it lately like it is. Connor Friedersdorf is a writer at The Atlantic, and uh, he has suggested that it is time to de-tyrannize the White House. Is that possible this year? It is always possible. It's never not possible. Uh, if Congress would do its job. President Obama has said he's concerned, and it's I, I have a bit of a hard time taking a lot, some of what he says seriously. He's concerned about leaving a loaded gun around in the White House for well, the next president, which, which is, it's, it's almost comical. That's, that's wonderful. If that is a deathbed repentance, it's better than no repentance at all. I, I would like to see what he means by that. I hope he means the same thing that you or I would mean if we made uh, uh, that kind of a statement, which uh, people like you and I do uh, uh, say things like that all the time. But look, um, this president has, in fact, um, taking, taken a lot of steps in the direction of consolidating power in the executive branch. And this has been one of the consistent refrains uh, that you've heard from some members of Congress. One of the consistent themes that I've tried to follow is pointing out to Republicans and Democrats alike in both houses of Congress, look, regardless of how you feel about this president's policy, regardless of how you feel about this president's political uh, uh, orientation, this is a bad Practice. This is something that ought to scare the daylights out of any Republican or any Democrat or Libertarian or person of any other political stripe, because this is not American. This is not how we do things. We 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 don't live in a kind of government where presidents uh, uh, can appropriately say, "If Congress won't act, I will." That's kind of scary. Scary because of what it says about the consolidation of power in the minds of the chief executive, in the minds of the American public as far as they regard the executive. It's also scary for the simple reason that in many respects, the law allows them to do precisely that. Because we, we've got so much buildup uh, from so many decades of broad, amorphous, quasi-lawmaking where we basically say, um, we shall have good law in area X, and we hereby delegate to department or agency Y the power to make good law in area X. Well, guess who controls department Y? The president and those he chooses who normally serve at the pleasure of the president. So in many respects, Congress has enabled this. Congress has created this monster, and it's time for Congress to tame the monster once again. Is there any appetite to do that this year? There is a strong appetite on the part of some members of Congress to do that. I don't, frankly, sense a lot of appetite from the White House. In fact, um, aside from this statement, which uh, was made very recently and has yet to be followed up by anything substantive that I'm aware of, uh, you don't ever hear that from the White House. Um, and shockingly, you don't hear it very much uh, from 
very many members of Congress. That is starting to change, and I'm doing my best to change that. But most members of Congress have become strangely, bizarrely content with allowing for this uh, delegated uh, uh, lawmaking uh, trend to continue. And in fact, I wrote a book called Our Lost Constitution that just came out in paperback. And in Our Lost Constitution, I explained that even though our founding fathers thought that each branch of government would have a strong, compelling interest to guard jealously its own power, what we see is that in the last few decades, the opposite has been true for Congress. Congress has been eager to delegate more and more. Why? Well, as I explained in our lost constitution, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the holy grail for most politicians, most members of Congress in particular, is to avoid criticism, avoid negative publicity, and take credit for doing good things, avoid credit for doing hard things. And so when, when we attack a law by saying we shall have good law in Area X and let's delegate the task of deciding what that means to Commission Y or Agency or Department Y, we take credit for what's good and we avoid criticism for what's hard. That's wrong. And we've got to turn that around. Is the RAINS Act part of that? Yes. I think the RAINS Act is perhaps the single most important step that needs to be taken in this area. It ought to be one of the first things that happens. And really, this isn't either Republican or Democratic. It's not liberal or conservative. This is just a constitutional issue. The RAINS Act uh, would require that any time an executive branch agency puts forward a major rule as determined uh, by its economic impact, it couldn't take effect until such time as both houses of Congress had acted, affirmatively passing it into law, and it had been signed into law or acquiesced to by the president. Interestingly enough, for the first 50 years or so of the modern federal administrative state. This is kind of how it worked under the old legislative veto framework. Uh, from the 30s through the mid-80s, um, Congress retained legislative veto power where an, an agency could pass a regulation, but usually there was a legislative veto provision saying if Congress doesn't do this, then Congress acting alone uh, without uh, the president can undo that regulation. It wasn't until the mid-1980s when the Supreme Court decided a case called INS v. Chata. Uh, uh, INS v. Chata, incidentally, was argued by my late father, but that's a different story. Uh, the Supreme Court concluded that the presentment clause of Article I, Section 7 prohibits the legislative veto process from being undertaken by Congress. A lot of people expected, with good reason, that after INS v. Chata was decided and these leg legislative veto provisions were deemed unconstitutional, that Congress would stop delegating away this much power. And instead, the opposite happened. Congress accelerated into that problem for the simple reason I explained a moment ago. It's easy to escape accountability that way. Do you believe that presidential electors in the Electoral College are bound by anything except their own conscience? No, there are some states that have these... Um, uh, faithless elector laws, um, the constitutionality of them has been called into question, and the constitutionality of them has not really been upheld or challenged or tested in court. Um, basically, electors um, have some discretion. Now, I, I think they're honor-bound um, to do what's right. I don't think they ought to depart from uh, what they're expected to do for light and transient reasons. 
But I think one of the reasons why our founding fathers put in place the Electoral College was to put an additional layer of protection there uh, in, in case something really bad was going to happen. That's how I read it. We are here and we're talking in Park City, Utah, which is a, a beautiful place. What is Utah going to do in this presidential election? The polling that I've seen is very strange. One thing that is not going to happen, we're not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Look, it's been since 1964 uh, that Utah voted for a Democrat in a presidential election year. That was seven years before I was born, and Utah's been repenting uh, uh, for that mistake ever since then. We're not going to make that mistake this year. I really don't know how it's going to turn out, but in the last few days, uh, the numbers have tightened, and we've seen um, uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton uh, in a poll released just a couple of days ago, tied at 26 apiece with Evan McMullen, who nobody had heard of just a couple of months ago. Um, uh, just uh, uh, four points behind them at 22. Gary Johnson, I think, was at 14 or 15 percent. Um, so I, I, I think uh, McMullen ha- has clearly enjoyed a surge. Um, uh, word that I'm hearing on the ground is that McMullen is continuing to surge. And uh, I think there is a, a real possibility that uh, Evan McMullen could end up winning the state. But look, we're still a few weeks away from that, and it might as well be an eternity. In the event of an electoral deadlock, uh, where no candidate receives 270 electoral votes, Congress has to sort of dust off some old procedures that it hasn't used for uh, some time, uh, to put it mildly. Um, Do you have any concerns about that process? Oh, sure, sure. I've got concerns about everything about this process. Uh, But the fact that we've got the process there gives me some comfort. The fact that we've got a way of uh, dealing with what happens if nobody can get to 270. That's why we have the 12th Amendment. And the fact that we've got it and the fact that it remains available should be a source of comfort to the American people. Mike Lee is a U.S. Senator from Utah. We spoke this weekend in Park City. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.